As we approach this letter together, an introduction is in order. But please know that although there is going to be some fascinating history, that this is not just academics, and it's not just to uh, entertain us. The purpose of an introduction is to uh, whet our appetites so that we want to know more and for us to be open to God challenging us in this new study. And so this is what uh, is, my, is my motivation in, in an introduction. And I know there's author and date and all this kind of stuff and themes and, but uh, I think it's important for us to know something about Corinth and where it is. And so I'm sorry, but we're gonna have to look at a slide. And uh, there it is, that's Greece. Corinth is in Greece. And in ancient Greece, the northern part was Macedonia. There was another section on the, on the, on the uh, west side, but for now all we care about is the, the north was Macedonia and in the bottom was Achaia. And that island looking thing down there is the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Peninsula. And it is uh, where Corinth is. And so connecting uh, that peninsula with the larger body of Greece is a strip of land that's called the Isthmus. You might remember that from school. It's an impossible word to say. Uh, so I'm going to be Peloponnesian Peninsula and Isthmus, and so this is going to be ridiculous. But um, that, that strip of land is about 10 miles long and about three and a half miles wide. And there on the southern end of that strip of land is the city of Corinth. Mm -hmm. Now, sailing around that peninsula was dangerous. As you can see, there's a lot of islands and uh, there's a lot of famous uh, phrases about that navigating around there. And basically, the idea is, is that when you do it, make sure you have your will written out. And so to save time, but also to avoid the dangers of that travel, they would like to be able to cut right through that strip of land. And so over the centuries, the idea was visited over and over again of building a canal through there. But you can imagine the difficulty in ancient times, something like that would have occurred. And there were, there were different people who actually uh, made a really good, strong effort to do it, like Nero, for example. But the canal was not actually completed until 1893, so a long time later. And uh, by the time the canal was, was created, and I didn't bring a picture of it, but the walls are very narrow down to a very, very narrow piece of water that these boats would come through, and, and today the modern ships are too big to even go through it. So it's more of a tourist attraction than anything. But there were all kinds of problems, landslides, filling it in, and having to dig that out. It was just a, it's something they really wanted, but in the ancient history, it was just a dream. And so in the first century, which is when this letter of 1 Corinthians was written, what was happening is that you can see that there's two ports on either side of that strip of land. And just to make sure I haven't lost you guys, there's the big body of Greece to the north, Macedonia and Achaia 
there's a little isthmus that connects to that island, that Peloponnesian Peninsula. And on either side of that are ports, very important seaports. And so they wanted to connect those two ports, and since they weren't able to do that at that period of history, what was happening is that larger ships would come to the edge of the land and they would unload the cargo. And they would transport the cargo from one side to the other. Um, there was actually a paved pathway of some kind that they used to transport smaller ships. And uh, I tried my best, but it sounds like some people talked about a system of rollers, other people talked about carts, so I'm not really sure how they did it. But smaller ships, they were actually able to move them from one side to the other on this paved trackway. There's a Greek word that means paved trackway, so we don't really know exactly uh, what was happening there, but we know that uh, what that ended up doing was putting the city of Corinth right in the center of east and west trade and north and south trade, right in the center. And so Corinth was a wealthy city. Um, uh, we've all heard of the Olympics. There was the Isthmian Games uh, that was held every two years right there. And so it was kind of second to the Olympics. So it was a, a cultural center for the, for the known world at the time. Uh, you've probably heard about the Temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was located there in the city. There's an elevated, it's 1,900 uh, feet elevation there called the Acro Corinth. And the temple sat on top of that. And of course, it's famous from uh, a guy named Strabo who claimed that at one point there was a thousand temple prostitutes there. Although uh, that is a suspected embellishment, um, getting anywhere close to a thousand is a whole bunch, isn't it? And so uh, regardless of that, uh, in antiquity, Corinth is well documented uh, for immor immorality. Uh, multiple sources, uh, phrases, uh, coin names, like you could, you've heard the term of being a Cretan, well, there was Corinthian, there was stuff like that too, which carried the idea, well documented in antiquity, that Corinth was well known for immorality. And this maritime location would have been ripe for that with the sailors and all of the, the money coming through there. And uh, it was a, a rustling, it was a bustling city live. Well, in 146 BC, the Romans destroyed Carthage. And this map doesn't show that. So you know that that big blue area there is the Mediterranean Sea. And you know if you were to go to the right, you'd end up hitting Jerusalem. But the land masses that you can barely see tipping up over there underneath Greece is an island, but below that is this big body of, it's like an oval. The Mediterranean Sea is like a big oval. And if you go to the left of Greece, you can see the boot hill of Italy. And right below that boot hill, you can just see a, barely a piece of land there that's Sicily. And believe it or not, uh, northern Africa. So if, if, I'm, if you're still following at all, and I apologize for not having a better map, but if you just go around the horn from Greece, you go into Asia Minor and you start coming down, Syria, Lebanon, you come into Israel, and then in the bottom right there, you're gonna run into Egypt. And so now we're in Northern Africa. 
And as you keep going west, you're going to hit Libya and Tunisia. Well, right there below that boot hill of Italy, the land kind of comes up at a peak. It kind of comes up at a peak and almost touches Sicily. And that's where the city of Carthage was. And Carthage was a, a great city-state. And they controlled all of that northern end of, uh, of North Africa. And so if Rome was going to be in charge, Carthage had to go. And eventually it did, and Rome, the Roman Empire controlled the entire borders of the Mediterranean Sea, and they would call it our sea. Well, in 146 BC, when Carthage fell, that whole south, southern region in the same year, that whole southern region of, of Greece called Achaia, it had a confederation of city-states. And Rome marched on them south from Macedonia. So in the same year Carthage fell, Corinth fell. Corinth was completely destroyed. It was burned. All the men were killed. And the women and children were sold into slavery. This is about 180 years before Jesus was born. 100 and 160 maybe, 146 BC. And uh, the area there laid dormant. Uh, the destruction of the city was massive and it just laid there barren for about 100 years. And then the emperor Julius Caesar rebuilt it. When he rebuilt it, he, he rebuilt it as a Roman colony. And so now the new Corinth has... It's under Roman control, and you've got Greek people living there. And from the Bible, we're going to find out that there are Jewish people living there too. But from day one, it's going to be a Roman colony. So when we're studying the letter of 1 Corinthians, Corinth is now under the control of Rome. And because of that, it's uncertain how much of the reputation of the old Corinth really follows through to the new Corinth the reputation that we are aware of, the things that we've heard of, most of that is from antiquity of the old Corinth. And so how much of it survived, we, we don't know for sure. We know that they continued to worship uh, Greek gods like Hercules and Hermes and Athena and Poseidon. They worshiped Apollo. Uh, that right there is, uh, that's the, what's left of the temple to Apollo. And it was in the inside of the city and right next to the Agora. And we've talked about the Agora many times. This is where, this is like Fountain Square. And this is where business was conducted. It's where people were sold. And so this temple was very close to it. Today, only seven of the 38 columns still stand. And so in the new Corinth, um, it probably was partially damaged at the time. And, and it's uncertain if it was ever rebuilt. Um, the, the temple to Aphrodite was rebuilt, um, but its remains are there no longer because from my understanding, what I've read is that uh, what was left of it was used to build a church in the fifth century. And so this is the city of Corinth. This is where this letter is going to go. This is where this church is going to be founded by the Apostle Paul. Now, most of the history that we talk about in the Bible that brings us to this letter comes from the book of Acts. 
the book of Acts is full of information about this. And uh, maybe you would want to hold your finger and just go back to Acts 18, because Acts chapter 18 is where Paul is going to actually go to Corinth. But all of the things leading up to that are in chapter 16 and 17 in Greece before we get to chapter 18 in Acts. So it's, a, it's like we have a history book, and then we have this letter written to the church, and you can put them back together like this and make something wonderful out of it. So um, if you'll allow me, I'll just kind of review this history for us. Uh, beginning in Acts chapter 16, we remember that Paul has, is on his second missionary journey. And they have moved all the way through Asia Minor. And they're up in a land, a place called Troas. I don't know if Troas is on the map. Is it on there? Can you see that? So they're in Troas. And, and uh, many different places, Paul, they had tried to go into. And God prevented them and just kind of buffered them until they ended up in Troas. And, and uh, Paul saw a man from Macedonia calling out to him saying, come over here and help us. And this is why Paul left Asia Minor and entered Europe. What you and I know of today is Western Europe. And uh, the, one of the first cities that he came to was Philippi. And Philippi, is, is that on the map up there? Okay, so they got to Philippi and, and you'll remember that Paul met those ladies that were down on the riverbank um, on this worshiping and uh, Lydia was there and, and the, God, the Bible says that God opened Lydia's heart and she believed and so there was a, a small church formed right there at that river and uh, every day this woman that was uh, demon possessed had this uh, that was practicing divination for everybody and making certain people in the city very wealthy well she was following them around and driving them crazy Paul finally cast it he said uh, you know he cast a demon out and the woman was restored, which should be a really happy story, but uh, it made everybody in Philippi very mad. And uh, they were beaten. Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into jail. And eventually they were, they were released from the jail and they moved from there to a city called Thessalonica, or Thess yeah, Thessalonica. And uh, it's a little bit down to the south. And people were accepting Christ in Thessalonica. But there is, the Bible tells us that there were some Jews who were jealous. And they were able to incite a mob. And so they had to leave. And so from there they went to a place called Berea. And in Berea, more people were accepting Christ. And you remember those were the people who were noble-minded and they were open, you know, uh, when you're confronted with something and you've never heard it before, you can tighten up your fists and rustle up, or you can ask yourself, well, is this true? And so these folks were noble-minded in the sense that they were open-minded and they went to the Bible to see if what they were hearing about Jesus was true. Well, what was happening is that these jealous Jews in Thessalonica came south. They came to Berea. And they were able to incite the crowds again. And it got so violent and terrible that they had to get Paul out of there. And, and they got Paul in a ship. And Paul sails alone down to Athens. And uh, Timothy and Silas, they stayed there in Berea. 
So by the time we get to chapter 17 in Acts, Paul has entered Athens and he's entered there alone. And you have to wonder what would be going on in his mind. You know, he's, he's went through these three major cities and it's just been kind of a disaster. I mean, churches were formed, but he left on the run. And you can imagine how horrible that would be because, you know, what if, what if you got saved and then everybody who told you about Jesus vanished and now you're just left to fend for yourself. And so a uh, horrible experience. And so the apostles were always trying to find ways to strengthen those churches, to send other people back there and to encourage them with letters and, and answer questions that they had. And so this is what we see happening. The letter, two letters to Thessalonica, a letter to Philippians. We've got two letters written to Corinth. And so these are the things that were happening. And so Paul gets into Athens and very few people accept Christ. It's uncertain. It looks like a few people maybe. And so from there, Paul limps into this horrible uh, city of Corinth. And again, Paul enters Corinth alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that Paul says that when I entered Corinth, I entered in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. We can imagine why. Eventually, uh, in Acts chapter 18, we find out that Silas and Timothy rejoin Paul. But for the time being, when he arrives in Corinth, he's all by himself. And he's all beaten up. Literally, thrown in jail, mobs chased out from one city to the next. And he gets to Athens, and Athens, I guess, was a place where people just like to hear the new ideas and just chew on them. You know, sometimes people ask me questions about the Bible, but they, it's not because they want to know because if I give them the right answers, they're like, wow, I'm, I want to change. I want to accept Jesus. I, you know, it's just really more trivial pursuit than anything. And so that was kind of the consensus that uh, we're getting from Athens. And so when Paul arrives in Corinth, he runs into these two people named Aquila and Priscilla. And Priscilla's the girl. So... Uh, Aquila is a guy's name. They're tent makers, and Paul was a tent maker, and so they hooked up. And we don't know how, but apparently Aquila and Priscilla had already received Christ as their Savior. And they were, they were in Corinth because they had been ran out of Rome. And we, uh, if you didn't make it to Sunday school this morning, Paul, uh, Gene was, uh, Gene and Barbara been, are preparing the, the book of Romans for us, and uh, part of the introduction is we found out that uh, about this edict by the Roman emperor where the Jews were expelled from the city. And it's right here in the Bible in Acts chapter uh, 18, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this he left from Athens and he went to Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And so Paul has met up with this couple. And uh, while he's living with them, he is going into the synagogue and teaching and explaining the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah in Corinth, at the synagogue. But his message was rejected. In chapter 18 of Acts, verse 6, it tells us that when it got to the heated point where they resisted and blasphemed, Paul said, well, enough. I'm going to the Gentiles. 
And from that point, he began to teach in a man's house that was right next door to the synagogue. And uh, that guy's name is Titius uh, Justus. And so he lived right next door to the synagogue. And we're told that a man named Crispus, who was the ruler or leader of the synagogue, him and his household accepted Christ. Um, we never want to minimize how serious that would be. You know, think of some movie star who is a mess and they become a believer. How earth shattering that would be. You know, we've seen different movie stars and uh, entertainers profess faith, profess faith in Christ and everybody works overtime on getting them to not do that or to uh, water it down, water it down, water it down to where you, you're not ruffling anybody's feathers. You know, this is what happens. So, but this person here was, was the leader of the synagogue. He was highly respected and people looked up to him and he received Christ. And we know that in Thessalonica, the Jewish people were jealous. You know, and this is because, you know, we've got two political parties in our country and, you know, there's different policies and we all have different views about the different policies and stuff. But so much of what's going on is people wanting to, people wanting to stay in power. Uh, and what Jesus was doing is he was, he was uh, attacking that power system in the Jewish communities because he was asking them to no longer be in charge, that the way they've been teaching things were wrong, and to now adopt the attitude of being a servant. Very different. And so Crispus, this ruler of the synagogue, became a believer. And his whole household. And so Paul knew that trouble was coming because the Jews had been stirring it up every place he'd been. And now the ruler of the synagogue had repented and accepted Christ as his Savior. And Paul knew trouble was coming. He was all alone. And he was worried. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, that Jesus came to Paul at night. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, it said, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. And so Paul ended up staying in Corinth, you guys, for, for 18 months, a year and a half. He was there a long time. Eventually, like I said, Silas and Timothy showed up. But when the time came for Paul to leave, he returned to Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. It's on the other side of the Aegean Sea. So he, he sailed back to, we don't know that he sailed, but he traveled back to Ephesus. And Aquila and Priscilla went with him. And when... They got to Ephesus. We have to remember Paul is on his second missionary journey. And so after he gets back to Ephesus, Paul goes ahead and drops all the way back down to Jerusalem. And when he drops back to Jerusalem, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there in Ephesus. And we know from Acts chapter 19 that they run into this uh, a man by the name of Apollos. And Apollos had never heard about Jesus and 
the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. And so he got the full gospel message from Aquila and Priscilla. And Apollos became a Christian. And eventually, Aquila and Priscilla sent Apollos back to Corinth in their absence. And so you can imagine the, the leadership vacuum in that church when Paul left and Aquila and Priscilla left. And so it was very natural for them to send Apollos ahead of time because eventually Paul is going to be making his third missionary journey. And so uh, what ends up happening is uh, Paul does begin his third missionary journey and he moves north from Jerusalem. He comes to Antioch and then he, he ends up coming to Ephesus. When Paul gets in Ephesus, he stays there for more than two years, a long time. And there's a lot of history there, things that we know about during that period of time. But while Paul is in Ephesus, this is when things start to unravel or develop, better word, for the letter of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul is hearing about some uh, questions or problems with immorality in the church there in Corinth. And so he writes a letter to the, to the people in Corinth. Now that letter is lost. That letter is uh, it's not extant. We don't have it, but we know it occurred because of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. First Corinthians 5, verse 9 says, uh, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I wrote, a letter, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, we find out that there was initially a letter sent. Okay? And then in chapter 5 and the following verses after that, uh, verses 10 and 11, we find out that Paul's letter was misunderstood. By no means referring to this world's immoral people or to the greedy and swindlers or to the idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. And so that is all in response to this initial letter. While Paul is in Ephesus, he's heard about some kind of nonsense going on, and he's wrote them a letter. And there in chapter 5, we find out that they didn't understand it. Well, then the next thing we know is we're going to read here uh, uh, probably next week. There's a, the household of Chloe. And Chloe has made Paul aware of some problems in the church. So Paul knows that there's something going on at the church in Corinth. And then there is a delegation of three men who come to Ephesus from Corinth with a list of questions. And those men are Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And they bring these, letter, these questions to Paul along with the things that Paul knows about from the household of Chloe. And so Paul sits down and he writes 1 Corinthians, the letter we're going to be studying. This is a letter written to a local church. It addresses a wide spectrum of issues. And if it wasn't in the New Testament, I don't know what we would do. So many questions are answered in this book in great detail. It is very, very important. It's like taking the book of Romans out of the New Testament, the doctrine of salvation critical. And so God is very uh, involved in the, in the writing of this letter, the circumstances that have developed to cause it to occur. 
And uh, most of the issues, the wide spectrum of things, it's like a shotgun blast of things. Where it kind of goes in a lot of different directions. There's so many issues and questions. But they basically, not all of them, but they basically all fall underneath three different kinds of uh, issues or subjects. And the first one is the return of Christ. And uh, we're going to see this here and, and what the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually means to us, to the believer. Um, we're going to find out about our new resurrected bodies, have an idea of when this resurrection is going to occur. And that's in chapter 15. In chapter 3, we're going to find out about uh, how Christians, after the resurrection, are going to stand before Jesus. And we're going to be giving an account of ourselves. And, and the lives that we've lived is going to be uh, evaluated by Jesus. And so the resurrection of Christ, and there's some other things in here about this. And so it's very important, a big part of this letter. Um, uh, there's a, a real back and forth between uh, spiritual wisdom and worldly wisdom. And all of that boils down to a person's worldview, or your ideology, your, your outlook, um, your attitude, and how much of the world you are going to allow to get into your thinking and your, the way you analyze and see things. And so this is a big part of the letter. And how, how well you handle that or how well you don't or how uh, you do not handle that has a direct impact on the third subject, which has to do with spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Uh, that's a, a big part of this letter, is spiritual maturity. And so a lot of times we're going to see people doing things that they shouldn't. Um, that's not so we can feel better about ourselves. It's to, it's to show us the right way and why it's the right way. So these are the three big umbrellas that most of the things in this letter are going to come into. And so... Uh, as we have given ourselves an introduction to this letter, the letter itself has an introduction. The first nine verses is Paul's introduction to the Corinthian church. It is an introduction that opens up all of the things that are going to follow. There is a greeting in verses 1 through 3, and then there is thanksgiving in verses 4 through 9. And so we're going to read through those things this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and our brother Sosthenes to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by Him you were made rich in everything, in all speaking and all knowledge, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By Him you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In every single one of those verses, Jesus Christ is, is named. So uh, hopefully we're getting the point. In verse 1 there, we were introduced to Paul. He's the author. And he is called as an apostle of Christ Jesus 
by God's will. Now we remember Paul was Saul. And we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school, who Paul was, Saul was. But the most important thing at this venture is that he is a Pharisee. And, you know, Pharisees always butted heads with Jesus. They were the hypocrites and all this business. But the truth is, is these guys were very committed to God. And they really wanted to live right. And so they, they had devoted their entire lives to studying the Bible, studying the Old Testament, studying the law, and trying to help other people, the Jewish community, know the same things. Because if, if you're a carpenter, you don't have time to uh, study the Bible all day, you know. Um, if you work in a restaurant, you know, you don't have the luxury of studying the Bible all week, you know. And so this was a role of the scribes and the Pharisees is to instruct. And so they get a bad rap in one, in one sense, you know. I mean, uh, lost, misunderstood, wrong about Jesus, but they were very committed and this was Paul. He was a Pharisee. He called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. And here we're told that he is called as an apostle of Jesus. And that it was done because of God's will. And so this is very important for us to understand, you guys, because we're going to talk about ourselves right now, who we are, and to appreciate what's happened to us in our lives. Just from this phrase alone. Because... To be called means that God chose you. Out of everybody else, he chose you. He decided, I'm going to rescue that person. God chose Paul. He decided he was going to rescue him. And if you know the story, you know, we talked about this in Sunday school. I hate to keep doing this, Gene. Maybe you should have just taught the class this morning because I keep referring to it. But, uh, you know... There's nothing in the Bible ever that tells us that Paul ever met Jesus or that he ever heard Jesus speak. But Paul was in the middle of it. He was a leader. And when the first century took off after the day of Pentecost, it was Paul's job to, to terrorize the church, to persecute the church, to try to put this movement down. And wow, so that means that it's very likely that Paul maybe stood in the same room with Jesus and heard Jesus teach and it didn't do anything. Nothing. It didn't even get in here at all. Can you imagine? And we see all of those people that listened to Jesus, His beautiful words, and they saw the miracles that He performed and they didn't believe. And so the fact that Saul was on a road from Jerusalem heading to Damascus with the warrants in his hand to drag Christians out of their homes, to have them put to death. It shows where he was at. He was zealous for God, but he was wrong. And on the middle of this trip, Jesus intervenes in Paul's life. Because God had other plans for Paul. So that means that when Jesus was teaching and, and moving about, and probably in Jerusalem, and he probably saw Paul. Paul didn't know it, but Jesus did. Jesus saved Paul 
when becoming a Christian was the last thing on his mind. This is a vivid picture of when God saves someone who's lost. When he saves one of us, it's a vivid picture. We may not have the Damascus Road experience, but the truth is, is we were deaf, dumb, and blind, and God intervened in our lives and rescued us. Just like he did Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, we find out that when Paul was, before he was ever even born, God already had this plan for him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Before he was ever even born, when he was still in the womb, God set him apart for his ministry to the Gentiles. Where am I getting that? Galatians chapter uh, 1, verses 15 and 16. It says, But when God, who set me apart before I was born, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. And so that's what I'm talking about. Paul's in the, if Paul, Saul is in the same room and there's Jesus, Jesus sees the crowd. He knows who every person is. He knows where they're at spiritually, what's going on with them. And there's Saul. You just wait, buddy. And when we think of when Peter became a follower of Christ, it was less dramatic. He was a fisherman. And Jesus called him. But later in Galatians chapter 2, we find out that God picked Peter the same way he picked Saul. Except when he picked Saul, Paul, when he picked Peter, he picked Peter to go to the Jews. Handpicked. What's that mean to you? Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, it says that he chose Peter too. It says he's entrusted with the gospel. For the uncircumcised, as Paul, just as Peter was chosen for the circumcised. This means that you and I are handpicked by God ahead of time and that He knows who you are. You're, you, you know, you're in church today and, and uh, he, he knows who you are. He's the one who got you here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here in verse 2, it says that to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. He's talking about the Christians there in Corinth. They're called too. They're saints. All of us have been called. All of us have been chosen by God. And then we find out that when Paul is writing this letter from Ephesus, that there's a man there with him named Sosthenes. Sosthenes. <laughs> And uh, he's there with Paul. And if we were to look at the very back of the letter, chapter 16, there's a little uh, phrase in here where Paul says that I'm writing this specific part to you with my own hand. And uh, why is that important? It's because this fellow was probably helping Paul write this letter because Paul had an affliction that we don't know a lot about. He says in verse 21 at the very end of this letter, we'll get to this in the future, but when we finally get to the end of the letter, it says, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. You see, and so uh, Sothenus probably was, was writing it down as Paul told him. As Paul was speaking, he would write it down. That's probably what was happening, but we don't know that for sure. And who is this man? 
If we were to go back to Acts chapter 18, when, when Paul comes into the city of Corinth, uh, we find out that at one point, the Jewish people grab Paul up and they drag him before the proconsul there in Achaia, Achaia before, the, before the Roman authorities. And the one who dragged him up there was the leader of the synagogue. And it wasn't Crispus because Crispus is now a Christian, so there's a new guy. And his name is Sosthenes. So it's very likely he's the one dragging Paul before this proconsul. In Acts chapter 18, it gets the tar beat out of him. They, they blow off the complaint against Paul, and they take it out on the Jews, and they beat up uh, this, the ruler of the synagogue, and he's beaten. Well, here we find out later that it looks like he's a believer. Look at the, look at the special words there. It says, um, it says, our brother, you know, uh, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and our brother, Sosthenes. In other words, he's here in Ephesus with me. He's our brother. You know who he is. And this is why. So it's pretty interesting, isn't it? And then it's written to the church, to God's church at Corinth. And when we think about who God calls, when he intervenes in our lives, that's why it's truly God's church. It's his possession, and it is at his pleasure to do with us as he pleases. And he will do with our church as he sees fit, as he sees necessary, us. Because we are his church too. And then uh, it goes on, it says, um, to God's church of Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified, what does that mean? Sanctified means to be set apart. Let's just talk about that just for a second. Sanctification has a past, present, and future. In the past, it's talking about an event. Something that has already occurred in the believer's life. In Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, it says that Jesus suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. So Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was crucified so that he might sanctify us with his own blood. That's looking back on an event, something that has occurred in the past. It's something that occurs at salvation, and that's why we refer to ourselves as being in Christ. And so that is the language and the meaning here in verse 2. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified. It's referring to that event in the past. But there is a present aspect to sanctification that is progressive. It's in progress. It's a process. And that is where you and I are at today because we're still alive. We're still living and breathing. It's, um, think of it like a marriage. Um, there's, uh, there's the event, you know, where you, where you, where you and your wife uh, exchange vows and before God and you enter into a covenant with each other with God as your witness. That's the event. But we all know that marriage doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. And there is a process, isn't there? Marriage goes over a period of time. And it's daily. And sometimes we do good in our marriage on one day, and sometimes we don't do so good on another day. But we all know that for a marriage to work, 
you have to participate. You have a role, a part that you play. And so sanctification has everything to do with God setting us apart for His purposes and then enabling us to grow through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is sanctification. It is a process. And it is a process where hopefully God is enabling us, if we are obedient, enabling us to grow more and more into the image of His Son. And then finally, there is the future aspect where all of these things come to completion and it occurs when we finally see Him. Because the Bible says that when we see Him, we will be as He is. And so our sin will be removed and we'll have our, our new glorified body that is free of sin. That new resurrected body, glorified, clean. Um, uh, without getting ahead into all of that business, but the idea is that uh, you're free from sin. There's, a, there's a, a place we're going to be at in the future that we're not at right now. In the past, you were sanctified, set apart. It's a done deal. It is, as far as God's concerned, it is a finished thing. But it doesn't actually come to completion historically until the future. And this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians verse, chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Remember that song? He who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you. No. We'll be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to complete it in you. That's what it's talking about. And then I also wanted to say here that it says that uh, it calls these Christians and Corinth saints. If Paul wrote a letter to us, he called us saints too. And in some religious circles, a saint is someone who, uh, after they have died, you look at their life and you make a decision about whether or not they're a saint. And so you look at, for two things. One is you look for uh, their life. Was it a, a life of virtue? Was it, uh, did they die a martyr's death? Was there a dramatic conversion? In other words, is there evidence that their life was extraordinary? And then you, you need something else. You need two confirmed miracles that have occurred because of them after their death. Two post-mortem miracles. And if you can get all that together, then this person is a saint. Well, in the Bible, people become saints not because of what they do, but because of what God has done for us. It's very different. And by the way, God does not want you to pray to saints or to Mary. The Bible tells us to pray to God the Father through His Son. He is the mediator between us and Him. And so all of our prayers are to go straight up to God. You don't need a priest or anybody else, a saint. or There's nobody else in between. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. So this is what the Bible teaches, and we want to follow the Scriptures. And in closing, finally, here in the verse, it, it closes by saying, with all of those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. What's Paul talking about there? Here's an indication that there's a problem. He is emphasizing unity. He is emphasizing the universal church. 
And you know, when you get into an argument with your, your best friend or your wife or your girlfriend, whatever it is that you're arguing about, your world gets so small because all you're thinking about is this little thing that you guys are fighting about and you don't see the bigger picture. And it's really hard to do because we get emotional and we're human and sinful and everything else, but you know, we just we can't focus on any you know, the bigger picture. And this is what Paul's talking about here. He says, with all of those, all of the Christians, with all of the other saints in every place, in Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, Jerusalem, everywhere, in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Because we're going to soon find out that there are very sharp divisions in this church that are going to be addressed very quickly in this letter. And Paul is pointing them to the larger family that they are a part of. Instead of thinking small and focusing, focusing upon those things that divide us. So uh, let's close in prayer.